This is part two of our Bank of Mum and Dad mini-series. If you haven't heard the first episode, head back to the Consume This feed in your podcast app and start there. Let's recap. So, homeownership dream in New Zealand has been fading for a long time. The homeownership rate peaked in 1991, that's a long time ago, and it has been falling steadily since then. We conducted a national survey to estimate the size of the bank of mum and dad. The results were shocking. Look, I didn't know how big it was, but we knew it was big. It's gotten so hard for people to buy a home. The deposits are so massive that you can't really afford to save it yourself. And who better to help you than mum and dad? We found that parents have provided $22 billion to support children into their first homes, with an average contribution of $108,000. My parents are very ordinary people. The only reason they could help is because their house went up in value. And the only reason the house went up in value is the same reason that I couldn't buy a house. That's Thomas Swain. Remember his parents used their own home to guarantee his mortgage? A bit of a risky strategy that seems to have him stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so then, you know, this kind of guilt sets in. He doesn't want house prices to keep rising. Well, yeah, it's cool having a house, but it's not cool that everyone around me doesn't. But if he wants to hold on to his home when his parents retire and their guarantee is removed, he needs them to. I bought that house for a million. In five years' time, it has to be worth 1.2 to 1.25 for me to be able to say, oh, look, there's enough equity in it that the deposit's already in there, and therefore I can keep it. Our research found that parents acting as a guarantor, like Thomas's did, was surprisingly common. One in five have put their own homes on the line to help their kids. So we've heard from the children. But in this episode of Consume This with me, Sophie Richardson, it's time to hear from the bank. I'm firmly of the view that I owe my children a good upbringing and an education, and if I can help them get into their first house, I should. We don't like it, but we thought it was necessary. Uh, What's the expression? Swallow a dead rat. For those who don't have credit at the Bank of Mum and Dad, we'll be talking to Brandon Valu about his unconventional but increasingly common first step onto the ladder. Obviously, it opened up my avenues to be able to purchase in places that I probably wouldn't have even been able to afford to before either. As we discovered last episode, the reason so many parents are helping their children into homes is simple. The price of houses has totally decoupled from salaries. It's become incredibly hard to save up a deposit This is even more acute when you're paying rent and saving at the same time. House prices are 10 times the average household incomes. You know, the historic rate before the housing boom began was four times the household income. This is economist and author Shamabil Jakob. He's a bit of a nerd when it comes to home ownership and economic inequality across Aotearoa. Think about it this way. If your income was $100,000 of your household, then you were saving for a $400,000 house, which is an $80,000 deposit. Whereas now we're talking about you're trying to save for a $200,000 deposit. That's the difference, right? The price of a home went from expensive but obtainable on an average salary to astronomical and out of reach for many of us. Well, let me give you a bit of context. Before the Second World War, New Zealand had relatively high inequality. And then we had built the welfare state and all of that kind of stuff, and inequality fell very sharply. And it's remained low until the reforms of the 1980s, 
And when those reforms happened, the promise was, yes, there will be an initial shock that will hurt a lot of people. But as we embed these rules and regulations and free up the economy, inequality would fall. But we didn't see that. So inequality rose and it stayed at that level and hasn't really improved for 30 years. And one of the biggest sources of inequality and poverty in New Zealand is housing. We haven't built enough homes. We have definitely not built enough public housing. We don't have enough rentals. We don't have enough sort of what we call the intermediate market. So we've kind of failed on every front. The idea was that if we didn't build state housing, the market, the mythical market, would build state housing for us. Now, that's just not how reality works, right? It's really hard looking after poor, vulnerable, complex needs people. So quite often, you know, the people who are living in state housing have very high and complex needs and not just poverty. And so there's always going to be a group of people in New Zealand, if we want to give them dignity, we need to give them housing. And the reality is we have chosen not to house these people. As of the last housing register, we have something like 25,000 households that qualify for state housing, but it is not available. I mean, that's shocking, right? I mean, this is 25,000 families. Yeah, he's right. That is shocking. There are two factors that are driving our housing shortage. The first is population growth. The second is a slow decline in average household size. That's the number of people living in each home. It's not discussed much, but as each home contains fewer people, we need more homes to balance that out. And specifically, more smaller homes, so less four-bedroom homes, more two-bedrooms. When it comes to housing supply, the market always tends to lag demand. Within our current framework, building more isn't an easy task, nor is it quick. But according to Shamabil, we are finally heading in the right direction. Ten years ago, you couldn't even call this a housing crisis. You know, we would have fights, political fights, about whether it was a crisis or a problem. When we had the latest set of reforms when it comes to housing supply and density, there was bipartisan support across national labour to build more houses. We probably have the biggest state house building program we've had since the state housing program began. But it's coming off the back of 30 years of neglect. So there is a lot of catching up to do. So, you know, I feel I feel for the guys at Kaingaora because they've been given this huge task and they can't win, right? Because it's not, you can't, you simply cannot build that easily because they don't have the expertise and experience of building as you know, because they have not done it for so long. So they're a bit stuck, but it is growing. Community housing providers are building more houses. It's slowly coming together, but it just needs so much more money and so much more urgency. We asked Kainga Ora, but they couldn't confirm this prior to recording. They suggested there may have been more building in the 40s or 50s, some 60 years ago. Make of that what you will. All of this will take time to trickle down through the system, and even longer for it to affect home affordability, We're talking decades here. The bank of mum and dad isn't going to be out of business anytime soon. In part one, we heard from Thomas Swain. His parents guaranteed his mortgage using their own equity. That's a strategy used by one in five bank of mum and dad lenders. By far the most common type of assistance was lending cash from savings. It's time to hear from the bank. 
Well, I'll, I'll take it from the start. So uh, I have two daughters, uh, and the youngest daughter uh, had a, a marital breakup some five years ago. She had three small boys, and she wasn't employed at the time, so she was in a pretty tough place. This is Noel Bates. He's a retired banker living in Hawke's Bay and father of two daughters. The eldest lives in Australia, where she brought a house without his assistance. We'll touch on that later, but the story is about his youngest. She's based in the Wellington region. She got to a position where she had reached an agreement with her former husband and had a settlement with him and she had a lump of money, but it was something like $50,000 and not enough to buy a house with. So she came to me and said, would I fund her into the, the balance to buy a house? And so I said, well, I will, but the way I want to do it is that actually I'll buy the house and my family trust and I'll take the $50,000 off you as a loan into that trust and I will actually uh, own the house in the trust. I'd like you to pay rent if you can, but pay as much as you can. That went quite well for a couple of years and then she made, formed a new relationship with a chap who moved in and then they started paying rent, which was absolutely delightful. So at this point, Noel has brought a house for his daughter to live in. He technically owns it, but they've agreed that the deposit she paid gives her access to all of the equity. After her partner and his son moved in, the house was just too small. It was time to cash in some of that equity and move on. Now, as you may have guessed, Noel isn't exactly short of a dollar. He decided to keep the house and pay out his daughter's capital gains. Between that and her new partner's savings, they had a decent deposit around $200,000. That should have been enough to get them into a house. But they didn't have a good earnings situation and a, and a job situation, so they wouldn't have been able to borrow. So they asked me if I would lend them the money as a loan, So and I agreed to do that. But I agreed to do it on the basis that, sure, they'd own the house this time, I wouldn't own it. They'd put their money in as a deposit, and I would loan them the money, but I wanted to do it, do it on a formal basis it would be covered by a, a full loan agreement and secured by a registered first mortgage over the property. And it would be on um, sort of commercial terms. So they'd pay a market rate of interest, which was an average of the four largest banks. So we agreed to that. It's gone quite well. They're in the house. Everyone's happy. This is undeniably the wealthy end of the bank of mum and dad. Noel hasn't just provided assistance to help them access a mortgage. He's provided the whole damn mortgage. That might seem extreme, the preserve of the wealthy few, and it is. The house cost over $600,000, but a story throws up a couple of interesting points. Noel is the bank of mum and dad in the purest, most literal form. Unlike the other parents we spoke to, he loaned the whole amount and has a registered mortgage over his daughter's property. That's the same setup as if they'd borrowed from any other bank. I just didn't want any misunderstanding. The registered first mortgage combined with a formal loan agreement means that there's no misunderstandings about any aspect of it. It's definitely a loan, and there is definitely interest to pay. You know, I wanted the loan to be a serious thing. It's not uh, just a daddy loan that they pay interest if they can afford it, maybe. Um, there's a penalty rate of interest in there, another 2%. I also wanted to make sure that they couldn't go and raise any more debt on the house. I've got a registered first mortgage there. If anyone wants to put another mortgage on there, a subsequent lender, it'll, it'll rank as a second mortgage. And I will find out about it, which is good. Things can and do go wrong with interfamily lending. You might consider Noel's approach 
excessive, but having a formal agreement means that everyone knows where they stand should something go wrong. I've seen a situation where a friend of mine did the opposite. He just loaned his son some money as a deposit for a house. The son and his, his wife got into financial difficulties soon after. So they sold the house and then lived off the small equity they had, plus the loan from my friend. That was a pretty sad situation, so I wanted to avoid that. There's another reason for formalising the agreement. Noel has two children. Families are complicated, and this is where the bank of mum and dad can become a bit fraught. Our research has found that more than a third of parents provide different levels of support to different children, primarily driven by need. In Noel's case, he hasn't provided any support to his other daughter. She doesn't need it. But how does she feel seeing her sister get all his help? Well, on the face of it, she is curious at least that her sister's getting some benefit. So I've assured her at great lengths that the younger daughter is not getting any benefit. She's paying a market rate of interest on the loan. And any of the other benefits that accrued to my daughter prior to the purchase of the home, that's to say when I was subsidising their rental for them, eventually when I croak and my assets are divvied up, the fact that the younger daughter may have received some benefits will be accounted for in, in the sort of divvy up of my assets. Noel's strategy is to support each child in the ways they need. He's happy to let it all even out when he's dead. That's another reason why, for him, having a formal agreement is so important. There's no cause for interfamily disagreements when it's all written down in black and white. If you're going to lend money, every expert we spoke to gave the same advice. Get it documented. Even if you don't think it's necessary, it will protect you if the situation changes in the future. But there are still lots of parents out there putting themselves at risk. The fact that we don't have a formal plan is is a little worrying, but he's a, a pretty ethical sort of guy. This is Bob Metcalf. He lives in Stokes Valley with his wife and son, Mike. I mean, obviously there are some people, as you say, who've got a hundred thousand lying around who could just give it away without any problems, but we weren't in that situation. So Bob and his wife have taken a much more complicated approach than Noel. They haven't gifted or loaned Mike the money. They haven't provided a mortgage guarantee either. They came up with a different plan. Well, we suggested that we find a place with either enough section to build a flat out the back or with a a flat already. We would sell our place. We would buy the new place. He would put in his money. We would co-own with him. You heard that right. Bob and his wife decided to sell their home and with Mike jointly purchase a new, larger one. The idea was to get a place with an attached granny flat for Mike. That way, he could have his own space while starting to build up some equity. This was a drastic step. They lived in their current home for 32 years. But honestly, Bob felt like it was Mike's only chance. We grew up at a time where everyone bought a house. Our first house was $27,000. It seemed a little unfair that he basically couldn't do it. We wanted him to be independent, have some equity, 
He saved up a tremendous amount of money. His social life was not brilliant. He was busy saving. He worked all sorts of awful shifts and holidays so they could get the extra money. He was saving somewhere around about $30,000 a year or more. I, I, can't, I, don't, I actually don't know how much he earns, but I doubt if it's more than about $60,000 a year. And we thought, well, he's saving like mad and he's getting nowhere. Initially, Mike wasn't all that thrilled with his parents' plan. But Bob convinced him. Well, he didn't want to be, you know, he didn't want us to sacrifice for him, I guess. You know, he said, uh, you shouldn't have to do this. And, you know, I said, well, you know, we've discussed it. We're not kids. You know, we're not going into this on the spur of the moment. We think it's important. They spent almost a year looking for a house that met their requirements, eventually settling on a place in Stokes Valley. Mike put his savings into the deposit and his parents added in the proceeds of their house sale. But that wasn't quite enough. Bob and his wife also had to put in all of their retirement savings. We essentially have no retirement savings left. I guess my wife is still working. She's putting in an extra year. But we're now in a place, he's in a place, and we're where we want to be in a way. Mike owns one third of the house, which he's paying off. Bob and his wife own the other two thirds. But they don't have any sort of formal agreement. They just trust Mike to make his repayments and do the right thing. Which, since they moved in in December, he has been. A very different approach to Noel and his strict documentation. In the previous episode, we discovered that one in ten Bank of Mum and Dad parents have put themselves into financial stress to help their children. So does Bob consider himself one of them? Difficult question. Objectively, we are at more financial risk, I guess, if something terrible happens. But we're no worse off than many people. We've got enough money to cover emergencies, but there's not much jam on it. We don't like it, but we thought it was necessary. Uh, What's the expression? Swallow a dead rat. That dead rat gnawed away at his retirement savings. That's the thing about this situation. Massive house prices don't just affect the first home buyers. Retirement is exactly the time that Bob and his wife should have been able to kick back and enjoy the proceeds of their hard work. Instead, they've had to pump all of their savings into helping Mike. Yeah, um, I think together with the pension is enough to keep us roughly okay, but that's it. We don't have any money for going overseas or, or, you know, making big purchases or anything like that. So Bob and his wife are doing okay, but their financial position is nothing like they had imagined for their retirement. They've gone from having a comfortable amount of retirement cash in the bank, enough for travel and holidays, to nothing at all. There have to be solutions to this. We can't settle for a situation where parents feel obligated to give up their retirement savings. And we can't settle for a situation where their children are locked out if they don't. 
I had more of a feeling of like hopelessness I guess it's like I just I was just like man I'm just gonna have to keep saving forever this is gonna I don't know if I can ever afford to buy a house at this point meet Brandon Vaulu. He's in his late 20s, and unlike everyone we've spoken to so far, he didn't have access to the bank of mum and dad. Um, yeah, nothing contributed from my parents at all. Just didn't want to put that financial kind of stress on them. My dad is the only one that works, um, so he's a sole income earner, and like, if anything happened to him, you know, there would be no more income. So taking that extra financial burden on those, um, my parents, would be extra stress for them as well. That's not to say that Brandon didn't have any financial support. He lived at home with his parents paying just $50 per week until he went flashing at 25. That allowed him to save up a decent sized deposit. But it still wasn't quite enough. So yeah, I basically um, at that time caught up with a friend from school and he was looking to purchase a property and he was in the position to be able to afford the house himself. But he was like kind of telling me like, yeah, I can afford a home now, but it means that I'm just going to have to live paycheck to paycheck, which is okay, but it's not ideal. I have to get someone to come and like live with me and board and things like that. I kind of had some ideas around different ways of approaching a purchase. And so I floated the idea to him that, okay, I'm looking to buy a property as well, but I just can't afford to buy it alone. Does the 50-50 or like going halves on the house sound like an idea because it means you're not going to have to live paycheck to paycheck. Your mortgage is going to be smaller. You're still going to own, but then it also means that I can kind of get into the property market as well even though I can't afford it by myself currently. Brandon's friend was interested but he wasn't sure. Co-ownership between friends is growing in popularity but it's still not common or well known. Um, So we approached uh, a mortgage advisor from Kiwi Bank because he was like just about there just wanted that little bit of like reassurance I guess and so speaking to the mortgage advisor they were able to kind of reaffirm what I told him about how it's going to work and things like that and so I didn't have to do that much convincing he was pretty much there but having that expert knowledge just helped get him over the line and feeling a lot more comfortable. After that meeting they decided to go for it. Brandon and his friend began the process of becoming co-owners it worked essentially the same way as if you were to buy with your partner and the bank sees it the same way as well um, obviously your agreements are going to be slightly different and the way that things work is slightly different but the way the bank sees it is just two individuals buying a property together the mortgage and the bank side of things was actually really simple we just did a joint application I guess the one thing you have to be comfortable with is sharing all of your financial information with this other person from a bank perspective pretty simple apply like normal um and yeah give all the financials it's the other side which through the lawyers that's a little bit more complicated um we needed to come up with agreement around if someone was to pass away what happens to their portion of the house if there's like a emergency comes up and someone can't work we basically had to go through a property sharing agreement to kind of outline all of those kind of scenarios and what would happen in that and that's a legal binding document so we had to sign it in front of a lawyer if you know those situations do happen we know what to do in those cases and there's no like oh but you said this and there's no just like oh yeah we're just a handshake kind of thing it's like legally we have to do this so it's a lot clearer to give them both some certainty they made this legal agreement binding for three years yeah so what's going to happen now i guess is the three-year period is up this april or may we've just recently kind of refixed for another three years in terms of the actual loan portions um so we've got like at least another three years left that we don't have currently have agreement in place for that three years we're quite lucky where we kind of see eye to eye so it's worked out well in that um scenario so what kind of difference has the co-ownership made to brandon's life if i go back to the start and like have the same 
conditions that I had at the start but didn't do co-own, I'd probably still be renting. It would have taken me a lot longer to try and save that deposit, especially with the moving goalposts of the house prices just were continually going up. The amount that I need to save was just getting further and further away. So I'd say, yeah, now if I didn't do the co-own, I probably wouldn't be in the housing, or at least on the property ladder. Brandon's experience is a success story. He teamed up with his friend to bypass the bank of mum and dad and get into his own home. Eventually, his plan is to take his share of the equity and use it to get his own home. If you think about it, it's not a million miles away from Mike and Bob's plan. Co-ownership with friends is increasingly popular. For some of us, it could make complete sense. It might even provide an antidote to the declining household size we talked about earlier. But it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all of our housing problems. I have to be honest, I worried about including Brandon's story. I don't want to perpetuate the myth that everything's fine and that if you just think outside of the box and suck it up and save a bit more and don't have that avocado toast, it'll all be fine. There will always be exceptions that prove the rule and good on them, good on Brandon. But the fact remains, prices are too high for many first home buyers. Oh yeah, 100%. And even at the point that we purchased the house, the prices were already going up. And when we purchased, we were like, oh, this is kind of expensive. Like, I feel like this is too much for a house. So we purchased our house for about um, 630 something. I can't remember the exact price. But um, yeah, now it's valued at a mil- or just around a million dollars. So, which is insane. But like, once again, we wouldn't have been able to afford that if, had we not gone and, and go in and purchase at that time as well. And that's why the Bank of Mum and Dad is the country's fifth largest lender with a $22 billion balance sheet. We know this is perpetuating inequality. We know we need to change something. We can't keep adapting ourselves to the system. We need a system that works for all of us. And that's going to take some serious change. Look, there aren't many easy solutions, but I think the intervention that we need to make is when we build houses, how do we make sure at least one, some proportion of that is for affordable housing. We can't just go, we're going to build 50,000 houses and they're all going to be for rich folk. Because there is such a shortage of housing right now, we need to go, yes, we'll build 50,000 houses, but let's set aside 10,000 for people who need it the most. Let's make sure they're for social housing, make sure they're rentals. In many parts of New Zealand, the rental stock is barely growing. Mm. And in some places, it's going backwards, even though the population is growing, right? So demand is going through the roof, but there is hardly any rentals to choose from. Mm. I mean, you go to Porirua in February, they had only something like 17 or 18 houses that rented in the month of February. Mm. I can't remember the exact number, it was was shockingly low. And so if you're looking for a place to live, that's where you work and that's where your kid goes to school, Mm. you're pretty stumped. Mm. So I think a lot of the solutions are not necessarily inventing new things. I think there's a lot of good work that's happening around slowly freeing up housing supply, land supply, infrastructure. These are things that are slowly coming through, but there is a urgent need to ensure that some proportion of that is earmarked and retained for affordable housing. 
So that affordable rental stock, do you think we need to move more away from having sort of private landlords and more into like a commercial setup where, you know, like there's a KiwiSaver provider that buys a apartment block or that sure. sort of thing? Yeah, so I think what you're describing is the build-to-rent sector, which is actually quite big in places like Germany, most of Europe, is growing in the UK, is quite big in the US. Um, so we don't really have that in New Zealand yet. So Simplicity um, is starting one, and I think we'll see a few more. So the big challenge with build-to-rent is, by and large, it tends to work better for rich renters rather than poor renters. God damn it, the bloody solutions are all <laughs> wrong. <laughs> unless you give subsidies, unless you give subsidies. So the thing is, you can't make housing cheap if you don't just help people with paying the rent. Mm-hmm. So there is no magic solution here. There is no silver bullet. I'm a big proponent of build to rent in the sense that I think when we build houses, we should make sure that some of it is for rental. Even if it's for rich folk, at least those rich folk are not competing for the uh, the other housing that's available, right? So. Mm-hmm. I think it helps, but it's at the margin. So we shouldn't over-egg what it can do. It is not going to be that immediate solution to affordable housing. It is going to be more of that aimed at the top end because, you know, it's really expensive to build a house. And if you want to have a low rent for it, then it just doesn't work. It's not commercially viable. Mm. So we're a little bit stuck. I I think, I know, Sophie, I think you're looking for some quick wins. Um, (laughs) We've screwed things up for so long. Yeah. I don't think we have quick wins left. Right. So it is really about subsidies. It is really about targeted supply. It mm. is about just helping people who need it the most, mm. either with money or with dedicated reserved housing for them. Do you think the government could become the bank of mum and dad? Look, that's what shared equity kind of does. So shared equity programs are good, but they're very expensive. So if you had to go, Shamabil, here's a billion dollars, go do something in housing, I'd go and put that straight into affordable rentals and not into shared equity. And the reason is because I could help so many more people. Mm. The gains are bigger than at the, in the other It's area. more about the spread. Mm. So the, the, mm. for those people who enter the shared equity scheme, if they can do it, it's wonderful for them. It's like winning the lottery. Mm. But you're not going to help that many people. Let's say you only have 10% deposit, that means that we have to come up with another 10%, right? Mm. As the That's the cost to the program. So let's say it might be, say, $100,000 of subsidy. In contrast, $100,000 of subsidy would house a lot of people. Mm. Yeah. And so I think that's really where we have to go. You know, when you've got so many people who are dependent on housing support already, mm. Where is the money best spent? Is a shared equity program, which is really what um, is, a, I guess, the corollary to the bank of mum and dad. Should that be bigger? Um, I don't think from a government perspective, I think we should absolutely encourage the private sector to develop something there. In the US, there is a really cool outfit called Divi that does exactly that. So you tell them what your income is and what your rent is and all that kind of stuff. And they go, OK, you are allowed to go and buy a house for, say, a million dollars. And then when you buy that house, you rent that house for a few years to build up your equity. Then you buy the house off them. So there are some really cool solutions that are coming out there, mainly because they're also screwing up the housing market and not building enough homes, (laughs) and it's getting expensive. (laughs) So it's not just us then. (laughs) 
we are particularly broken. So there are not many places in the world where house prices are nearly 10 times the average household income. Mm. We are extraordinary in terms of how expensive it is. So where does this leave us? There isn't a nice ending to wrap this all up in. It's a long-term problem that needs long-term solutions. The bank of mum and dad isn't going anywhere anytime soon. For deposits to become affordable, house prices have to fall a long way, which, as Shamabel pointed out, is unlikely to happen. Our economy is entirely wrapped up in the property market, and the government wouldn't let it fall. And even if they did, as we've heard over the last two episodes, there are a lot of averagely well-off parents, many nearing retirement, who'd be in big trouble. The situation is a mess. It feels like the only good options are to drastically increase housing supply or to somehow invoke a huge cultural and regulatory overhaul to move away from home ownership towards stable and secure long-term rentals. Rentals that still need to be built. Neither of these are quick fixes. Bumping up housing supply is the work of decades. Changing our social attitudes and structures takes generations. In the meantime, Bank of Mum and Dad is going to continue to assist where it can, and the children of those where it can't will continue to struggle. So what does this mean? What will our country look like 10, 20, 30 years from now? Will we force change or settle for our two-tier system? Security for the rich and cold, damp, badly maintained, insecure homes for everyone else? I can't answer that question, but right now it feels like we're at a bit of a crossroads. We know there's a problem. It's not a partisan political issue anymore. It's accepted wisdom that we have a housing crisis. So what are we going to do about it? Do we plough straight on, or is it time to stop and head in a different direction? In part, it's up to all of us. In bigger part, the responsibility lies with the government of the day whichever colour they wear. And it's our responsibility to vote in representatives that bring about the most equitable outcomes possible. That's ultimately why governments are there, to make society the best it can be for the largest number of people. You've been listening to Consume This with me, Sophie Richardson you can find a link to our full Bank of Mum and Dad research report in the show notes. This episode was produced by Tom Rees-Smith. The executive producer was Gemma Rasmussen. The Bank of Mum and Dad research data was collected and analysed by Scott Moore. Consume This is brought to you by Consumer NZ. We're proud of our independence, which we can only achieve because we're a not-for-profit supported by our members. For more information on Consumer and becoming a member, Follow the link in our show notes. Matua. Hello, I am Abby Darman and I work in the campaigns team at Consumer New Zealand. I want to tell you about some of the exciting work we're doing here at Consumer New Zealand. 
Right now, literally, as we speak, we are working really hard to keep big businesses and our lawmakers in check. So we're currently engaged in taking on unfair retirement village contracts, misleading supermarket pricing and dodgy green claims. To keep up this good work, we need to raise $50,000 before the 24th of September. So please, if you can, help us to help others by heading to consumer.org.nz forward slash donate. Thanks so much.